Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connections, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Well, hello, everybody. I want to welcome today Janice Lynch to the Back to Basics chair. She's the founder and CEO of Here in Access and Innovations, a leading global business dedicated to helping the world's corporations, cultural and entertainment institutions, government agencies, and mass transit organizations improve accessibility for over 360 million people. Janice is described by many as a tireless and passionate advocate for those with hearing loss and other disabilities. She's known to be relentless in her efforts to bring about change against all odds, never taking no for an answer. There are too many appointments, honors, and awards to mention, but just to highlight a few from a very, very long list, she has been named the United States Women Changemaker by the White House, the U.S. Department of State, the U.S. Department of Labor, and the Aspen Institute, a hero among us by People's Magazine, and she has also received Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Goalkeepers Partnership. So, hello, Janice, and welcome to Back to Basics. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Just to clarify, I'm a nominated change maker from the white. From oh, okay. The- well, to <laughs> me, it's almost the same. I've been nominated for those things. It's almost as being a recipient, but <laughs> okay. So thanks for the clarification. I mean, I mean, the, the list of honors and achievements and, and contributions that you give and it's, it's really overwhelming. So I'm humbled to have you here in the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is so much fun. So I, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, you know, I take praise in saying that I've had many, many inspirational guests. I mean, it's one of my requirements. If it doesn't inspire me, it doesn't get on the show. But, you know, to have inspirational people that also are making an impact in making the world a better place, that's that I don't take that lightly. And you, I have to say, you're among the very few. There's only very few that I have that really you're making an impact at at a much bigger level. So that's pretty amazing. I'm very excited that you're here. Well, thank you. This is, you know, I love what I do. I mean, and I think that's part of it. Yeah. And, and I know it has, there's a, I would say an intimate story, obviously, on how you got to do what, what you're doing. I, I take it, but take me from the beginning. Are you originally from New York? Are you based in New York right now? Right. I'm born and bred in New York. And as um, Fran Leibowitz says, like, I can't imagine living anywhere else. Oh, well. I know. <laughs> well, my audience must uh, be thinking, what is happening? I've had so many New Yorkers on this show <laughs> lately. I don't know what's happening. I told my husband, I think I'm going to move to New York at some point because uh, the universe is bringing me all these amazing people and they're all based in New York, which to me is the best city in the world, by the way. <laughs> I I really love it here. I I really do. You know, it's a place where you can, it's, it's easy to make an impact because there are so many name recognizable people and, and, and places. So when you make change in New York, it really spills over everywhere. Absolutely. No, I agree. And, And New York is New York. There's no doubt about it. So you were born and raised and tell me about your childhood, like things you were passionate about, who you were uh, growing up. So even as a child, I was a change maker. 
you know, my mother used to make fun, like, like I went to nursery school at two years old before it was fashionable to do that because I was bored at home and insisted I had to go to school. <laughs> and I was constantly, re- <laughs> re- you know, trying to change, you know, I, I didn't understand why I couldn't go to school. So I insisted we go to the school and I sit and I talked to the people at the school, why they should accept me. And, the, and they did. And I, I was probably like more like two and a half. Wow. So, you know, I was, I was basically came out of the womb as a change maker. That's just always been the way I, I am. I mean, even when I was younger, I worked on muscular dystrophy carnivals and always had one. I did March of Dimes walks. I don't know why, but I've always been enmeshed in the disability world, even from a young age. I'm also a passionate traveler and have always traveled my entire life and collected stamps when I was younger. So it's kind of accelerated, you know, from collecting stamps and having pen pals when I was younger to traveling the world and then disabilities and now combining developing global best practices, it's come together. And it, when you look back, it, it's, you can see how the progression happened. That's so interesting, you know, because one of the goals that I am set to, you know, with this podcast is to establish when you see really, really successful people, like what is the difference? Because you see people that are successful and, and that depends how you define success. To me, success is someone that says what you say, I love what to do. To me, that's success. When you spend your life and your days doing something you love uh, and that you're good at. And then you see people that were connected to what I call that what makes you tick that, you know, from very early on, like you just share, like you say, I don't know why, but I, I was like this. And then you found a way throughout your life to manifest it and to do things that then now, you know, you're fairly young, uh, you know, you could put all of these things together. And that's really when the magic can happen. Because if you start late, then no matter how much, I mean, it could still happen, but, <laughs> but it's, it's harder, I think. Yeah, it is interesting. I've often wondered why, but I think, you know, people tend to pursue the things they love and that makes them happy, right? Like why keep, it's probably why I don't exercise the way I should because I don't enjoy it, right? (laughs) And if I use that same passion, right, to run a mile, I would probably be really good at it, but I don't because I tend to work on the things that I love doing that brings me joy and Exercising sadly is not one of them. So <laughs> well, but but then you put your time to good use, which is in, great, you know, because some people don't like to do it, and then they just invest their time in something else. So so I understand you have a a bit. So in terms of career, were you uh, did you study something that you thought you were passionate about, or how how the whole educational path was for you? You know, it's really funny because I've had these, what seems like disparate things and they've all come together and, and, and it is really funny how that has happened. So even from a young age, I was very entrepreneurial. I had, um, I used to work in the flea market and sell my stamps and coins. Then I was making terrariums and selling those in the flea market. And I always (laughs) had like a little business and I was also advocating for change, for legal change. I remember writing letters as a young child to legislators to see how to, to change things for children and children's issues. And then I went to a college and I majored in marketing, a business degree special concentrating in marketing um, because I love how marketing can advance things no matter what you're doing. But my goal, I was also, you know, 
ran for office at, in college, and I was the head of um, the publicity director for the student association. I worked on my school newspaper in the on the advertising side, and I was always doing a combination of marketing and politics, or mm-hmm. bringing you know how to affect change and doing marketing at the same time. Because to me, the two work together. If you're going to affect change, you have to promote it. it. You can't just do it in a vacuum. So I was the publicity director for the student association of my college. And I was constantly figuring out how we could do things that would be better. And then I decided I worked in advertising for three years on clients like Revlon, Baby Ruth and Butterfinger, Nabisco, um, Holiday Inn, which became Intercontinental. And then I went decided I, I was at a crossroads of where, what do I do next? Do I get my MBA or do I get a JD? And I decided to get the JD. I didn't love practicing law. It was, to me, a pointless endeavor. It was about fighting and winning. And I was really want solutions. And being a lawyer many times is not about solutions. It's about winning. And I, and, and um, scorched earth tactics, and which I find beyond irritating. Like, that's just not how I want to live my life. So I left the practice of law um, when I had a child and my daughter um, was very sick when she was born and then developed a hearing loss. So it became a natural progression. I also had another child who died during delivery. So it made it easier to give up my career. I also hated practicing law. I, I just hated it. I will never, this is not something I ever want to practice and do again. I knew I always tell people when they pick a career, you should be able to read the trade journal. And if you, because you have to stay on top of things. And if you can't read the trade journal because you hate it, Mm -hmm. this is the wrong career, (laughs) right? And I hated reading the New York Law Journal. I, I didn't care. I just like, I was like, this is so the wrong career for me. But I knew I wanted to use my law degree to affect change. And so I could take the marketing degree and the law degree and affect change. And then I had a daughter with a hearing loss. Yeah, well, it sounds like it was like a tool. And and by the way, I, I stood one at that exact crossroad because I, I always say I wanted to be a lawyer and my dad didn't kind of endorse that idea. So I ended up going for business. And after I graduated, I said, okay, do I take the law degree or do I do my MBA? And actually I went and did my MBA. So hearing that kind of feedback, I think I would, I would probably have had the same reaction that you're having. Uh, but I, I agree with you. It's such a, a useful knowledge to have, especially, I think, in the United States, which is also very litigious by definition country, more than other countries in the world, I believe. But it's it's very powerful, that combination. And, uh, well, I I'm also want to say I'm sorry on the personal front that, that you have to go through those uh, the experience of losing a child uh, at delivery. That must have been very, very difficult. It was, and it changed... It changed the way I, I handle things. I stopped relying on experts. So I hadn't. I knew there was a problem, and the doctor told me I was being neurotic and everything was fine. And I, you know, I worked in medical malpractice, so I knew, like at the ninth month, the baby had less movement because there's nowhere for the baby to go. Right? You can't turn or you know tuck away in a little corner the way when they're you know early months. And I should, but because I was a first-time mother, I didn't 
no to stand up to the doctor and say, you know what, I'm going to the hospital. I need a second opinion. Mm-hmm. Had I done that, he might have lived, but I relied on the doctor who was, quote, the expert. So it took still a little further when my daughter was born um, and she was very sick. She was a preemie and had that preemie disease that kids um, sometimes get. I, again, I had a doctor who, a different doctor, now the pediatrician who said I was being, you know, neurotic, but I, I don't know how a child eats to know that. But it seemed to me she was eating less than the day before, Mm. but, but I don't know how much baby eats, but it just seemed different. And luckily the fellow listened to me and didn't think I was neurotic and he saved her life because that unbeknownst to me was one of the signs that the, of this preemie disease. And I, I guess there was another sign as well that I had noticed. And I realized that I was perceptive and, and people like to paint women sometimes as being neurotic when they're perceptive. And the difference between paranoid and perceptive is being right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And I, and thankfully for that, um, that really astounding fellow who is now, I think, the head of, um, he's the he- head of something in Mount Sinai Hospital, but he was outstanding. But then when my daughter, when my daughter wasn't speaking, I knew something wasn't right. But again, this is pre-early, you know, when early intervention was just starting, he, you know, people, autism was just coming out. Uh, I didn't know what was wrong. I knew I could see she was alert in her eyes, but I knew something wasn't right. And again, I was portrayed as neurotic. And then when her hearing loss was diagnosed, and like, this is when you don't want to be right. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, there were multiple yeah. times where I really <laughs> wanted to be neurotic because the outcome of being right was such not the answer I wanted. So I, being neurotic would be way easier. I could deal with that. Just go to a few therapies and I could deal with that. Mm-hmm. But now I had a diagnosis and I was like, I am, this is the third time. It took me a while, but I realized I'm done listening to experts. I'm done thinking I'm neurotic. I'm not neurotic. I'm just really perceptive and I connect dots and I am going to affect change because I am just tired of everybody's opinion. So when the doctor diagnosed my daughter with a hearing loss, she right after said, but don't worry, there are special schools for her. And I've said this before, like I hadn't even wrapped my head around the diagnosis when all of a sudden the bar was so, was lowered for her by a doctor who didn't even know her, didn't know me, this was like, I had to go to an in-network doctor to get a prescription. So this was the first time I was seeing this doctor. I was so upset. And so I think if I hadn't had these horrible things happen, which of course I would rather not have had them happen, but I think what has made me so driven is I am unwilling to listen to people who are so-called experts with their so-called opinions when I think my opinion is equally valid, and I'm going to test it rather well, than just capitulate. Wow, that's that's very powerful, Janice. Thanks for sharing that. You know the story and and the journey because obviously it has defined uh, you know you and what you do in life. And uh, reading about you and researching for this interview, I know that I read somewhere that you have two favorite quotes, which are very appropriate. You say obstacles become opportunities, which you clearly have kind of uh, you, you've done and then never waste a crisis, which is actually my favorite one. Never waste a crisis. That's 
That's so powerful. Just the thought of, yeah, this, I much have rather not happen, but then if it did and I have, and this is the situation, then let me not go to waste. And you obviously haven't let it go to waste. I can tell already by all your achievements and, and, and the change you're prompting. I mean, you're having such important conversations. You've been invited and, and we'll talk more about it, but you've been on several committees at the FCC level. You've, uh, you know, you've addressed the FDA. Did I read somewhere that, that at one point you needed to talk to the chairman of the FDA or they weren't talking with the FCC chairman and you call him daily <laughs> until something happened? Yes, that's true. And then I spoke with um, a subsequent chair, yes, because that was so irritating to me. So, but I spoke to... Um, Chairman Califf, um at the Aspen Institute, at that, which is another funny story because I finally had him at lunch and other people wanted to ask questions. And I had my things and I was basically, I was like, I really don't care if you have a lot of questions. Like, I need this because your questions are just, you wanted to say you spoke to the FDA chairman. I need to actually affect change and I need to understand hearing aids and I am going to get this information because this is my only opportunity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, and so like everybody at that table knew, don't even think about asking a question because <laughs> don't mess up with her. She means business. <laughs> I am getting my information. And it was clear the FDA commissioner knew. And so we spoke, but it, it was irritating to me that the way hearing aids, so to buy a cell phone, you need a rating for the cell phone and a rating for the hearing aids because there's something called radio frequency immunity levels. And you need both ratings for it to work on the microphone and then the telecoil, which allows someone with a hearing loss to activate their hearing aid and, and pick up the signal from the electromagnetic signal from the cell phone. The FCC rates the cell phones, but the information at the time, this is going back several years ago, was not transparent. Um, some of the cell phone carriers would put it very teeny. The people in the stores didn't understand what it was. There was not a real lack of training. No one understood what was going on. But worse than all of that was the FDA didn't um, require hearing aids to have telecoils. And you couldn't find out what the rating because it wasn't rated. It wasn't mandated. And you needed someone from the FCC to call the FDA but it had to be a like position. So like if it was a chairman, it had to be a chairman, calling a chairman. If you were commissioner to commissioner, it couldn't be, you know, just a low level employee calling up the chairman and say, hey. And I didn't really understand this. I understood it in concept, but I really thought it's somewhere in the FCC should figure this out and pick up the phone, but nobody was. But at the time, my daughter's cell phone, um, she needed to, this is going back way, I think it was 2009 when she was using a clunky Nokia phone and she wanted at the time a cool Motorola phone, but her hearing aid didn't work. And it turned out that her hearing aids weren't rated for cell phone capacity and we had to get new hearing aids. And that never occurred to us. So I just decided I would call the FDA every single day until someone finally resolved this. And then finally, the FDA received voluntary compliance from the hearing aid manufacturers who I think were afraid that they were going to be required to do this. And now, as a result, once you had then you had those numbers disclosed, we found out our hearing aid, my daughter's hearing aids weren't rated. We needed new hearing aids. We got her new hearing aids, and suddenly the world of cell phones opened up to her. 
And it was amazing. And that's when I wrote a subsequent article because I thought, oh my God, I'm on the FCC's Consumer Advisory Committee. I'm very plugged in. If I couldn't figure this out, no one else could figure this out. This is like a seemingly impossible task because different organizations couldn't tell different information. And this is before you had, um, this was at 3G. This is no longer relevant because 4G eliminated the GSM and CDMA networks. But at the time when it was 3G, like there was one network, GSM, that was better than CDMA. And I didn't know that. I didn't even know what GSM or CDMA was. And so I had to figure all this out. And I decided to synthesize, but nobody was able to write this article because like the FCC couldn't advocate one network over the other. The wireless industry membership organization couldn't advocate one over the other. The hearing loss organization was doing some video with AT&T at the time. Then even the various companies were like, they wouldn't, Macy's was not going to send you to gimbals, so to speak. And so like nobody could write this article. So I decided, I, again, I would write the article. All these people helped me. I never disclosed who helped me because it impacted their job. And it ended up transforming the entire cell phone industry and the companies that were being less transparent were embarrassed into becoming more transparent. And now every cell phone that's sold by a carrier is accessible for people with hearing loss and all Apple smartphones are accessible for people with hearing loss. The issue is a non-issue anymore. Wow, that's uh, um, fascinating. And, and, you know, I'm in telecommunication, so I'm already impressed by the language you're using, like someone that's not in telecom to, to you know, command, uh, you know, the, the networks and the technologies like that. So definitely it's, it's inspirational, but at the same time, it's heartbreaking because this is something that it should be, you know, relevant to everybody. And it's no secret that, you know, as a mom of two and, and my kids don't have that issue, obviously, you know, I'm less passionate than you, but then I hear you and the, ch and the challenges you had and, and your daughter who is now how old? Uh, 26. Oh, and I definitely want to hear more about, you know, her life. It sounds that she's the luckiest person alive to have you as a mom. You I'm know, not sure she always thinks that. <laughs> I, I absolutely think that. But now I'm becoming passionate about it. And even before this interview, after I read all these things, I said, well, you know, I am obviously connected in the wireless industry. Anything I can do to help to raise awareness. It's something that as human beings, we should all be concerned with. No one that has, you know, a, you know, this extra challenge in their life and we have the tools to fix them if we work together. Uh, it shouldn't be this hard. Like, I totally understand the frustration. And uh, I mean, you you definitely have to have a lot of energy to solve this issue. So you created, you founded your company to help the issue and also to put to good use all this information that you were gathering and the things that you were doing, correct? Yes. I mean, it. a lot of it just didn't make sense. But I will say, because I came from this background of not trusting experts, I was able to like, I treat everybody the same. I don't care. I, I, and people will say this, but I literally do. I, I will call the FDA chairman. I will I will speak, treat the person who's working, you know, as a janitor at the FCC. This is exactly the same way. To me, people are people. And people are so often afraid to reach out to people they feel are above their station in life. And I don't really know what my station is. So therefore, <laughs> it's really easy for me to reach out to everyone. And we have a mutual friend, Ruth, 
Yes. Who wrote an article about me doing this in Forbes, where I reached out to the Queen of England when I went to Buckingham Palace and the signs were wrong for hearing accessibility and the people dismissed me. And he get like, they couldn't be bothered. I could tell they were never going to follow up with it. <laughs> and so I wrote to the queen and the signs were fixed. And I was appointed to the internet. I didn't even put this on my list because I never did anything. So even though I was appointed, I was appointed to the International Royal Advisory Committee. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, but I never did anything. And they never asked me. So I feel like even though they said I was on the thing, I never added it to my well, official they, list. because Yeah, but they did fix the, the signs. So you did do something. I guess that's true. I should add. All right, I'll go back and you add should it. put it back <laughs> in. I mean, that's so impressive. But also because I think you, you hit it on the nail, like we feel we put these limitations to ourselves and we label ourselves and we think, oh, this is never going to happen. I've said this about guests like yourself, like people that I never in a million years thought they would say yes to being a guest on, on, on the show. And they said yes. And, and people say, how are you getting these people? And say, I'm asking, you know, and, and then out of asking, then, you know, there's some say yes, some say no. But but if I don't ask, then then you don't know. So I I am inspired because I think we all suffer a little bit. You know, I'm like you, I'm a people's person and I normally I just go for it. But there's some times that I get intimidated by calling someone too. So it's very inspirational uh, that you call the queen of finger. I'm going to think if Jan is called the queen. I sent a letter. I didn't have her personal phone number. Well, it's the same. Well, the same. You called her attention somehow. You did something. Well, you know, it, it, but it's exactly that. You start with a no and it can only turn into a yes, right? Yeah, so yes. if you don't try, you stay with your no. Exactly. So you have to try. And, you know, it's really funny. I'm working on a project right now about access on ferries. Mm-hmm. And I knew the ferries, I had done a FOIL complaint, a FOIL request on New York City ferries. And I found out that the ferries in Canada and British Columbia had access. And so I wasn't able to get those documents. So I wrote to Prime Minister Trudeau. I figured, okay, he can get those documents. And sure (laughs) enough, and I sent an email. And sure enough, I received a response from his assistant. And then all the documents were sent to me that I needed. Wow. And then they connected me. What was really crazy is then they connected me to their shipyard in Poland. And their shipyard in Poland connected me to the Norwe- uh, another um, country's transportation system that also installed, purchased boats with, or ships, I should say, ships with induction loops. And that was the Norwegian Department of Transportation. And so coming, so then I was able to get the contracts from the Norwegian Department of Transportation that I will now take all of this and synthesize it into a federal complaint. And I can't, you know, to be able to navigate globally, I have to work at a high enough level because otherwise people view it as another project. But if you come from the top down, right, then people respond. And so I regularly only email CEOs or heads of state or government, you know, senior government officials to start the project because otherwise it's physically impossible for me to affect change. That is, wow, that is a valuable lesson. You know, being in the private world, even in telecom, when you propose like an innovative solution, like I even sell a couple of things that are very innovative, 
and you try to instill change, exactly what you say, from the bottom up, it's impossible. Unless you sell it at the highest level and whomever makes a decision can see what you want to do and what you want to achieve, then it permeates down. Otherwise, it's really, really hard to, especially with trying to to uh, create change, especially in that category. When you have to go out of the box and do something differently, it's not going to happen from the bottom down, I think. I have never found it ever, ever work. So I would say I can't think of offhand any project where I started at the bottom and it just didn't become a colossal waste of my time. The perfect example is the taxis behind me where I added induction loops. That happened because I wrote a letter to Mayor Bloomberg and it was really funny. I was going on a trip and I'm on the Queen Mary and I get a panicked email and phone call from someone at the Tax and Limousine Commission. <laughs> we need information. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm about to sail. And they're like, well, mm-hmm. what can you tell us? Can we set up? And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, Queen Mary, <laughs> taking this call, you know, this, when and I'm trying to solve this. And it took nine years, but this was because the Mayor Bloomberg had sent an email to the Tax and Limousine Commission because I contacted him. I had tried it the other way. I can't think of a single project that I started that um, was successful that didn't occur because I started from the bottom. Every project only moved when I started from the CEO or head of state or head of secretary or, you know, some top level. Which I'm sure that you say it simply, but also starting there is hard because you have to have the access to that high level. Like you have to know who to send the email to and how to reach that high level, right? It's not so hard. Mm-hmm. No, I, it's not like I had this Rolodex before I started, like that I knew like I was a who's who. I'm just a regular person. So, okay, there were definitely some contacts in my, you know, living in New York City My children's schools were private schools. So there is a who's who of people. So there are projects where I leaned on parents. And I used to joke, um, I just needed more children at different private schools and I could really (laughs) change the whole world. But like, I was like, okay, I I just have to show, write a few more kids. I love that. But most of the time, I am literally Googling who's the CEO and then Googling their email address and looking through reams of documents to look for something where someone forgot to redact a document or there's some website that has their email or some way. And so now I just reach out to everybody and I do this for everything in my life now. I have a bank problem and I can't get through, you know, the 1-800 person who tells you there's no one above you. I just email the CEO. I make one phone call and my second is email the CEO. I am not going to spend an hour on hold during the pandemic to deal with a, a banking issue. Okay, so my second learning thing from you today, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. This is very valuable, even for my selling, uh, putting my selling hat on. But now I want to hear about your daughter. Like, tell me about her, how has her life has been? Do you think that obviously all the things that you have done, I imagine that have been clearing the roadblocks that, that she could have faced uh, and trying to make life as normal as possible. And, and she sounds, by all means, she's living a full life. So I just, you know, share share with us some something about her. Well, my daughter's now 26. She doesn't love when I speak to her uh, about her as much. You can imagine, like any child, nobody wants their parents like sitting and discussing them. 
but she's an investment banker in London. Wow. She's very successful. She graduated from an Ivy League school, um, which was my idea of the special, but I don't think that's what the doctor meant. <laughs> she was the first person with a hearing loss to graduate from her private school in New York City. So she is a very accomplished person in her own right and doing what she loves. And what I love is that she is doing what she loves. She's also not working in um, the disability industry, which became a cottage industry after passing the Americans with Disabilities Act. She had her choice of job of what did she want to do. And so I think that's really important is we need to move people with disabilities out of the industry of disability. It can't be that every successful person with a disability has a high level position in the disability world. That's fabulous. But real success is being the CEO of a company. We need more people with disabilities on boards, you know, contrary to, you know, it can't be, we can't find people, the people exist. And we need to start lifting people up the same way Black Lives Matters has lifted up people who are black. We need to start lifting people up and look casting a wider net for people with disabilities and allowing them to succeed. But if we don't build in the access, so that means for Fortune 500 companies, they should be adding induction loops, the same technology that are in the taxis, into their conference rooms. No one should have to ask permission to hear. And so when, and the FCC is a perfect example, you know, the FCC has, I don't know if they have, I think they have a system listening system. They may not have an induction loop system, but post pandemic, no one is going to want to wear a headset or put anything in their ears ever again. No one is comfortable saying, oh, someone cleaned it. Well, if I was that comfortable with the way people were cleaning, I'd be staying in hotels. I'm not because I don't believe anybody can clean anything well these days with no dispersions against the hotel staff. I'm just not comfortable relying on anyone else right now, that anything that's going to impact my health. And I think things are going to have changed going forward on how people view cleanliness and putting something inside your ear or on top of your ear that's touched another human being is never going to work. So using an induction loop that allows someone to take control of their hearing loss and not ask permission to hear by just switching the setting on their hearing aid or cochlear implant to the T, they can receive the sound. That is critical. And I think that's, we need more companies to start adding that technology to their conference rooms so that you don't know which person within your office needs it. A client comes what is a client supposed to do? Come to your office and then now ask two weeks in advance, I need this technology? No, the technology should be in place for all meetings because otherwise those companies are saying our clients can't possibly have a hearing loss. The same way they have ramps and they have the bathrooms accessible, an induction loop is ramps for people who are hard of hearing. <clears throat> That's a very, very strong point. And I did read your article on on. It's time to include the, the disabilities and diversity. And I think you make a very, very valid point, even with what you just said. It's, uh, it, it's something that definitely has to be brought to the table. And, 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 and you're, you're right. If we have, you know, the chair on the pool for someone that can, you know, to get down into the water, 
uh, you know, other things that can be done to help people with other disabilities that are really, as you say, the technology is there. It's just it's just a commitment to implement it and, and make it accessible. It shouldn't be that hard. Exactly. And I, I always like to tell people the D in diversity is for disability. But every time I see um, diversity panels or heads of diversity, they're always based on race. There are, I never see people, I can't, and I can really pretty much say, I rarely see anyone with a hearing loss that doesn't know sign language. Uh, when people do use somebody who's the head of diversity, who uh, has a disability, they want a visible disability. So they mm -hmm. tend to be either blind using a wheelchair, or they use sign language. So this way it's clear, I have a disability, but a lot of disabilities are invisible and it shouldn't, a person shouldn't have to announce that they have a disability to be the head of diversity. Yeah. And otherwise what's happening is hearing access isn't being implemented because the person who's in charge of the access doesn't fully understand it because it's impossible to know every disability's access well. You have to study and become an expert and you have to have a commitment to it. And so it's really important for people to be in the room to advocate for what they need. And if you can't be in the room or have a discussion at the table, the access isn't included. Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you. And I think you have a very, very valid point. I commit myself. I'm big on diversity, but this is a point that I'm going to include on my own diversity speech is uh, about bringing disabilities into diversity. I think it, it makes total sense. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, we all should strive to, to help each other. I actually, I'm going to make a little confession. I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a bachelor's fan. <laughs> and actually one of the contestants in this season, she has hearing loss. And I thought it was very courageous, A, of her to go. And then she put it out there the first night. And I thought also that, It, I think even the shows and TV, for whatever reason it is that maybe makes a good, but it's so great that because for me it was like also an aha moment, like, yeah, there's people, this woman is beautiful. She's successful and she wanted to go on The Bachelor. And it's great that she gets the chance to do so when other times you never saw that happening, you know? So I think that bit by bit, uh, that there's an awareness level that is increasing about, about these kind of, uh, of subjects. I also love, I believe she's deaf. If I'm, if I'm, I, I she think uses I, sign language. I, I, yeah. She used sign language. Okay. I'm not, I, I don't I, remember. I, I didn't, I don't watch the show. I saw, saw I just, only the first episode, but yeah. I, 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 but I love the fact that also expanding beyond because it, it reached a point in the deaf and hard of hearing community that if somebody wanted to portray the person was deaf, Marlene Matlin was the go-to person. Marlene, who was an accomplished actress, though, didn't even have to act. If they saw her name, she was the deaf. Everyone knew she was deaf, right? Mm -hmm. she, didn't, she just had to be in the credits and we knew she was deaf. But it shouldn't be that her deafness defines, like she mm -hmm. should be able to take on other roles and there should be other deaf actors. And there was really such a limited pool of actors that you just, when you think of deaf actors, you think Marley Maplin. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, and I think in, in part, it's all these initiatives that you're working on. They, they definitely, I'm sure, creating some major ripple effects. So is there anything that you want to highlight? What, what is it exciting right now for you? I mean, I can tell you're excited about all the things you're talking, but is there anything in particular you want to share with the audience? 
Well, I think one of the two, I think there are two things that I'm excited that I'm working on. One, helping to, um, there's over-the-counter hearing aids, which I helped to initiate by approaching Senator Warren. After I testified before the FDA, I realized that one of the problems was there was a monopoly of the hearing aids. And I had, I approached Senator Warren years before about discussing this and breaking the monopoly after I attended a workshop she was giving or a speech she was giving at a school about the credit card monopoly. And I realized the hearing aid monopoly was exactly the same thing. And so I sent her information and then she subsequently introduced the bill, which became the law for the -the over-the-county hearing aids. So I'm excited with the new administration. They will finally bring regulations, which is part of the requirement. And I hope to work on those regulations. The other thing is bringing, now that we have a pandemic and people wearing masks and there's plexiglass everywhere, it's really, really hard for people with hearing loss to hear. And so we need the, the cell phones are accessible for people with hearing loss. They have, they work with a person's hearing aid to receive the signal. But for somebody who doesn't have a hearing aid and wears, let's say an AirPod, I want the cell phone industry to be able to, the the phone right now receives a T-coil signal. I want the phone to send the T-coil signal so that if it sends the T-coil signal, then somebody who wears if there's an induction loop in the room, then somebody with an AirPod can receive, can use their AirPods to be able to, or their cell phone to be able to pick up the signal from the cell phone, right? So if there's an induction loop, this phone should be able to be able to use that induction loop signal to receive the sound. And then through Bluetooth, the phone can then send the test sound to someone's AirPod. Yeah, it becomes kind of, a, if I understand correctly, like an amplifier or a router of the signal to, exactly. to, to, your, to your headset. So imagine now if you're at a pharmacy, right? You go to your pharmacy and they have an induction loop and it's hard to hear through the plexiglass through the mask, right? The pharmacist is wearing a microphone inside their mask, right? So they have a dedicated microphone for themselves so there's no cross-contamination, you use your phone and you put in your headset or AirPods and suddenly you could hear exactly what the pharmacist is saying right in your headset. That's that's a game changer for sure. Game changer for yes. entire thing. And it will also help people with hearing loss get loops into locations. So it'll make induction loops into universal access. So my goal is to make sure this cell phone can pick up an induction loop signal. That's powerful. And let me add, this is also something that will help the elderly because my parents, my mom uses a hearing aid because she, you know, because of age, lost her hearing. So this is something, you know, that is not something that even the wireless industry would do only for one segment, that there's an extended segment that because of age or other reasons can also benefit from. Absolutely. And I think it, it makes it universal access. I don't know why, but I've contacted multiple pharmacies about adding the access for older adults and they're not adding it. I don't understand it because it really makes, you know, if someone, first of all, if it exposes, in my opinion, pharmacies, because if they're in describing information and it's not clear and the person can't hear the information, 
you don't have informed consent Mm -hmm. and people could have serious injuries about not getting the correct information. So it's really important that the correct information is communicated and you can't just say, oh, it's written on a piece of paper. People have follow-up questions. That's why they go to pharmacies. If we didn't need to speak to the pharmacist, we would just do all pharmacy by mail, right? We wouldn't need to have in-person pharmacies because people want to be able to follow up with a question for their pharmacist. So uh, the goal is how do we get these phones to receive an induction loop signal? Well, I said it before, I'll record the chat, but if anything I can do, you know, from someone that is within the industry, I, I, I uh, openly commit to help in any way I can because I think your cause, it's, uh, it's an important one. And, you know, they, I heard it from a past guest of mine, which I'm proud of, Tammy Simon, who's the founder of, of Sounds True. I heard her say yesterday, you know, that the, now the, going forward, the, there, there's a rising of conscious business. Like we need to do what's, what's good for the greater good. We need to change the mindset. It's, it shouldn't be only about what's good for the companies. It's about what makes the world a better place. And it sounds to me that all the work you're doing definitely makes the world a better place. And all the show notes and all the information about Janice and her work would be on the show notes if you're listening to this. And you know anybody, you know, struggling with this, I definitely point them in Janice's direction. Her website has so much information and resources that, that will help anybody that, that needs uh, direction in this. And uh, I always close the interview, uh, Janice, with asking, you know, what makes you tick? Besides, I mean, obviously, you're in what you do. It's a big part of what makes you tick. But in those times where things get tough, where you get disappointed and frustrated with all the craziness and bureaucracy you have to deal with, and you have to stay connected to your energy, to your creative energy, to what gets you moving forward, what is it? Do you have anything you do or a place you go? No, I just work on a lot of different projects in a lot of different industries. So this way, if let's say I get frustrated with, you know, telecommunications, then I'll work on hearing aids. And if I get frustrated with that, I work on museums or transportation. And so sometimes I get stuck. Sometimes I can't penetrate through the organization system and I have to wait a while. Um, Through the Trump administration was a perfect example I had to sit on a lot of projects waiting for him to leave office because I was afraid he would roll back access and and definitively wouldn't advance it. So I had to sit. It was really frustrating. But I worked on other projects that weren't impacted by the federal government to keep the progress moving forward. So by it's kind of you have the the gross national product basket. Mm-hmm. I call it my hearing access basket, right? <laughs> I keep enough projects in that basket. So I'm always working on, on things and moving something forward. And then those people t- that where it's stuck are thrown out of office. They're impeached, right? They, <laughs> they're gone <laughs> or almost. And so it makes it easier to move the others forward because I just stop working there. And then I pick up on those projects when the um, impediment is gone. Well, 
uh, obviously what makes you tick is work and you because you are <laughs> passionate about your work and that it's a blessing. I really think that people like you that are doing what they're passionate about. I say this about my dad all the time because in his free time, he does something that's work related. I honestly don't have that. I don't work until all my free time. <laughs> I, I like other things, but I really uh, admire people like you where your work is truly what makes you tick. So I thank you so much, Janice, for being here. I'm a fan. I admire the work you're doing and you really inspire me to to do more and make the world a better place. Thank you so much for having me. And I really love chatting and you're incredibly gracious with your remarks. So thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. And until the next time. Mm-hmm.